HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Carp Resources, carpresources.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Kiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Boswick, Brooklyn. Um, this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? And we hear dashi, ramen, yuzakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Chris Jacob, who is the chef owner of Alonda, a modern Venetian restaurant near Union Square, which is known for creative use of Japanese flavors in the Italian context. And he's also the chef owner of a fast casual restaurant called the Uma Temakeria in Chelsea, which sells delicious handwall sushi. Uh, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Kiko. Happy to be here. So, um, before we talk about your interesting work at uh, Londa and Uma, Uma Temakiria, let's talk about how you got into cooking. Sure. So, cooking for me is something that I was fortunate in some regard and unfortunate in other regards, but my parents were separated when I was young, so I was sort of raised by my grandparents. And my grandmother was an Italian-American, live-at-home you know, woman. So she cooked a lot at home and had a garden in the backyard. And so I grew up eating sort of fresh food. So I think that sort of had some of my influence. Um, and then the, the other side of it is I'm very direct and goal oriented. And mm -hmm. I, and I sort of had a moment when I was in high school that I told myself that I wanted to be a chef and I wanted to cook mm -hmm. and, and I never really looked back. I sort of made the decision that this was what I want to do. And, and that was that. So it was it was the the moment was a little bit odd in some sense so i was making um like instant taco mix you know so mm -hmm. i'm i'm browning the meat in a pan and i had this sort of like flavor pack which is msg and cumin <laughs> and spices and mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff into it and like the taco shells were toasting in the oven and 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 i'm smelling this aroma of all these spices when when as it hits the meat and the meat is cooking and and i just sort of said to myself you know 
I think I could do this. Hmm. And it was literally like that moment. I said, you know, I think I can do this. <laughs> so I, I went to my guidance counselor in high school and I said, hey, you know, I think I want to do this. And him and my parents both told me I was an idiot. Hmm. Um, they just didn't think that this, at the time, 20, 20 year, 22 years ago, maybe 21 years ago, hmm. this was not a profession that... It wasn't a profession, necessarily. It was something that people considered you went to if you didn't have other options, especially the type of neighborhood I grew up in. And my parents own an accounting firm, so they are like, you know, suit and tie sort of business people. <laughs> and that's clearly not what I am. And it wasn't what I was then either, but, but they were not really happy about it. And, you know, now they're they're proud and, and happy that I chose this because I'm mm -hmm. passionate and I love it. But, but really, it was that exact moment that I sort of said to myself, I, I think I can do this. And I... Enrolled in culinary school, so I went to vocational school in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and then I enrolled in, I applied for Johnson Wales. I got in, and I've been cooking since I was 17 years old. Wow. So, taco revelation. Taco revelation, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, after you graduated from uh, um, university, Johnson Wales, mm -hmm. and uh, you worked at a number of amazing, uh, great restaurants in New York City, including um, American Restaurant, uh, Larry Four John's. And new American restaurant, 11 Madison Park, which has now um, three-star Michelin. And modern Indian restaurant, Tabla. And Japanese restaurant, Morimoto. Italian restaurant, Aifiori. Then you opened Alonda in mm -hmm. 2014. Yes. So how, how did you make those decisions to cook so many different kinds of cuisine? So I'm, we sort of touched on this about me and languages and how I'm, I, I can't learn them. But I am very ravenous about information. You know, I'm very curious and I always am, and I think it's to the frustration of some of my team members and my fiance and my personal life and whatever, where I'm always in search of moving forward. <laughs> I'm always in search of sort of something different and new and learning. And so, you know, as I sort of got to the point where I felt like I had taken what I needed from each of these cuisines, which was information and, and I, I would look to what I want to do to move on from that. Mm. So... You know, I was Indian cuisine. I, I sort of landed on in the sense that I was working at Messon Park already, and mm -hmm. Tabla was directly next door. So I sort of had access to eating there, and, and Danny was very generous that allowed Danny us. Danny Meyer, Danny of Meyer, Union Square. yes, of Union Square, Square Salad Group, yes, the same owner. Yeah, so he was very generous in allowing us to eat in all of the other restaurants. You know, mm -hmm. we got a we got a dollar amount every month that sort of let us go. So you know, he's a poor line cook. It was intriguing for me to be able to go next door and eat Indian food, and so I. I was very intrigued by the cuisine and the flavor profiles, so I went to there because it was one semi easy, you know, relation not easy in the relationship building side of it. I had already known some of the people that worked there and, mm. and that sort of thing, and allowed me to continue to grow at, in terms of my thought process and my mm. understanding of food. Right, sounds like you're competing against yourself. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good way to describe it. I am. <laughs> I constantly am competing against myself, and mm -hmm. I think. Any entrepreneur and any person that's trying to grow and get better at what they do and continue to build is competing against himself. I mm -hmm. think that if you ever think you're good enough or you've learned everything there is, then what what do you do at that point? You know. Mm -hmm. So now I'm I'm focused on a little more of the business side of it, the front of the house, the open table, the learning about reservation systems, and and because that's part of my business and the hospitality side of it. That's sort of one of the areas that I'm trying to grow in at the moment. Um, but. Japan was something that I had always told myself. I had returned to Love Messon Park after Tabla, and I was there for a couple of years. And it was starting to get to the point where 
I've been sous chef for a few years, and like opportunities to be the chef de cuisine or the chef at restaurants were starting to come my way. But mm-hmm. well, let me ask you. So when you after you had experience in Tabla, you went back to Eleven Madison Park. Mm-hmm. Did you see you know the same restaurant before and after, right? So did you see different styles in your cuisine? Well, I got there. I went back. On, with the understanding of discussing with the company and the powers that be that there was change coming to La Messon Park. Mm. So they hadn't really been clear to me about what was happening, but I'd been with the company already for five years, and, and Richard Corain from the corporation and several other people that were up high on the, on the levels there had sort of been telling me, you know, we need someone to help us with this, and we can't tell you exactly what's happening, but trust us that, that there's going to be a big change coming. Because I was sort of not... Interested in returning to La Maison Park again. Mm. I'd been there as a cook. I'd been there as a sous chef. You know, and they had, they had sort of approached me once or twice while I was at Table about it. And I had said, no, I, w- I didn't really want to. Because you know? <laughs> um, I felt, again, I had felt I had taken what I wanted emotionally and, and physically and, and intellectually from that restaurant already. Mm. So through them and through their sort of talk and enthusiasm about the change, what was happening, I went back. And about three months after I got there, Daniel Hume came into La Messon Park. Mm-hmm. So clearly a very, very drastic Right, so Daniel Hume, is, uh, he uh, changed the whole concept of Eleven Madison Park yes. uh, than before. Yes. So that, was, uh, so that was a completely new and fresh learning experience for me again. Mm-hmm. You know, something that kept me very motivated and tired and, and um, intellectually stimulated for, mm-hmm. for some time. You know, mm-hmm. I was there for about two years mm-hmm. with that. Um, and at that point, then it was really starting to be, you know, it was time for me to leave the company. You know, mm-hmm. I, Marcus Samuelson, I'd interviewed with him when I was looking mm-hmm. to He's leave. He's a famous chef. Fa- very famous guy. Like from, uh, uh, right now he has a uh, great restaurant in Harlem. He used to be at COVID. Mm-hmm. And, yes, and Red uh, Rooster. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I was, I took a meeting with him. And, you know, he, I will never forget this one line from the entire meeting he said to me. He was like, he was like you know, I've been there a long time. And his response was almost too long. Mm-hmm. Like staying in the same company. Like, Almost getting to the point where I don't know anything other than this company, mm-hmm. you know? And I had seen worked for three different chefs, etc., but he was right. It was time for me to see something new. Mm. And I also didn't think that it was time for me to be a chef necessarily. I didn't I didn't think... I, the next people were coming to me, and they were offers, and they were mostly, like, smaller, like, independently run restaurants, and, and then nothing that really grabbed me. And I had always told myself I wanted to see something Chinese or Japanese before I really started looking mm. Because to they're be so chef. different. And they're so different than what I had already seen already, mm. you know? So Chinese arguably can be similar in the northern western region to some Indian cooking, etc., but, mm. but still very different than what I had already experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, so I trailed at Nobu. Um, I trailed at Shunli Palace. Mm-hmm. I, like, you just uh, knocked on the door and then, then let me trail. <laughs> well, it was networking. So, okay. you know, I, I knew someone that had used to work at Nobu, so I had said, hey, like, I really want to go in. Mm-hmm. So they, they, like, were looking for staff, so they gave me the opportunity to go in and right. spend the day with them. Okay, so Sh- the trail means basically, you know, paid, but the users see, learn, and help. Uh, yeah, all of these were one-day trails. So, like, okay. I spent one day there, and it was like, do I, like, you do you not like me or mm-hmm. do you like me or whatever so i did both of those restaurants and neither one of them felt right to me mm. um and then i got a call from someone in a larger role at uh steven star's company about steven has, has an infatuation with indian cuisine mm-hmm. and he's so never... steven star's another big you know yes. corporate yes. restaurant group owner He's so, a very talented. So, so his name was Howard Ween, who was mm-hmm. the COO of the company at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he took the meeting with me personally in New York because 
Stephen has had some obsession with Indian, and they were talking about trying to do an Indian concept. Mm -hmm. So I met with him, and, and they were sort of like, well, we're not really that close, but we really sort of like you. We have an opportunity at Morimoto. Why don't you go take a look and, and sort of see what you think? And at the time, as I had mentioned, I, I didn't necessarily think I was ready for the chef's role yet. I didn't, wasn't sure I necessarily wanted the chef's role yet, but I clearly had, was interested in learning a different cuisine. Hmm. So I went and I spent the day at Morimoto. I met Morimoto. I met the chef de cuisine, and like Morimoto seemed to like me, which happens to not that many people apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was some of it. The other side of it was really on a professional level. They made me feel comfortable. Hmm. You know, I had spent many years in, at Tabla and the Le Messon Park, and I don't know if you've seen their kitchens, but very, very professionally run, mm -hmm. very, very clean, very, very organized. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen that in some of the other places that I had I had gone to. And Morimoto really felt like it was the perfect compromise for me. Like mm -hmm. it was a little bit less refined than what I was used to, but it was still had the systems in place and the cleanliness that was there. And, and so it gave me the opportunity to feel proud of where I worked, but still mm -hmm. learn something very drastically different. Mm -hmm. And there aren't a lot of opportunities for guys like me to get into traditional Japanese restaurants. Right. So what did you learn there? Oh, where do you want me to start? I mean, <laughs> I, I think... The two most important things I took from them are their the Japanese respect for tradition and taking your time and learning how to do things very specifically. Mm. The other one is very business oriented. I learned how to look at profit and loss statements and and handle payrolls and all those sort of things that I never had the opportunity to do in Danny Meyer's company mm -hmm. that I did get to see in Steven's company. So from a business standpoint, I learned more than I ever did as a, from any of the other ones. Mm. I say I learned less about cooking at Morimoto than I did anywhere else, with the exception of ingredient knowledge and mm. the basics. Mm -hmm. um, and an example was, you know, the the guys at Renio Mikase Bar and the, the sushi chefs, the, the real Japanese chefs that were in the restaurant. There were lots of them. There still are some wouldn't eat my family meal for the first six months I was there. Oh, wow. They would not eat my basic cooking. They wouldn't eat it until like, they felt comfortable with me and around me. And wow. I was really offended at first. You know, it was really sort of like, I'm a guy who's been in professional high-end restaurants my entire life. I work clean. I work organized. I have nice tools. You know, like, it was something that was really took me back and, and, and made me sort of think about it. And... After I got over the feeling of being offended, I sort of understood it. You know, they don't trust my cooking. They don't trust my understanding of it. You know, mm. and whether I was playing with Japanese ingredients because I was really excited to see something new or not, they wouldn't mm. take me seriously. And, right. and it really took me some time to sort of appreciate the fact that they wouldn't do that until they believed that I understood why mm -hmm. I was using these ingredients. Oh, and, so uh, they're kind of testing you skill set yes. as well as the mindset of the chef yes. in the Japanese standard. Absolutely. And and Morimoto, people can judge it and say it's not Japanese or it's not sort of whatever they want to say about it. They get a lot. Morimoto gets judged a lot. Mm -hmm. And I know he takes it very personally that he feels like he gets shunned by the traditional Japanese chefs. Um, but the rice is polished every morning in that restaurant it goes through a gr it goes from brown rice to white rice every single I, morning i don't think uh, there's many places there's very few <laughs> there's very few places potentially in japan that even do that right. you know and so there's still so many things the dashi's made every single day mm -hmm. you know there's very few restaurants that sort of stay true to these specific traditions right. and and so that's the other thing i think i really took from him and mm. from that restaurant and I think that has helped me grow as a professional and grow 
into what I ended up ultimately being my own personal style. Mm. Great. So um, now then, so you decided to open La Londa, you know, after Morimoto, you, you worked at uh, the executive chef at a uh, high-end Italian restaurant. Yes. And then you decided to open a Venetian restaurant. Mm-hmm. And was it part of the original plan to incorporate Japanese flavors in Venetian cuisine? So it was the only reason we ended up, not the only reason, but the real reason why we ended up using the term Venetian was because it's the most globally influenced region of Italy. Mm. So Marco Polo is from the Veneto. Depending on who you talk to, did he bring noodles to Italy or did Italy create noodles? There's lots of different schools in history about this. But I personally think that he did not do it. I think they existed there already, but it is what it is. So, you know, they are also where all the spices came into Europe through through the Veneto and, and Venice. So mm. in the 1400s and the 1300s and these times, it was the trade hub of Europe. So it was the most, you know, they have rice, for instance, they have curried risotto in the Veneto, right? Mm-hmm. So I could, at the beginning, I thought about doing it at the restaurant at Olanda, but I, I, I sort of figured that people, there would be too much pushback about it not being Italian. Mm. You know, like, what is this? This isn't Italian. But mm-hmm. it, when it truly is Venetian, mm-hmm. and that is why we, we chose Veneto as that region, because I felt like it gave me the opportunity to use all of these other ingredients that weren't necessarily Italian and still have credibility mm-hmm. and still have people take me and the restaurant seriously right. as opposed to being a, lack of a better word, a bad fusion restaurant mm-hmm. or an average fusion restaurant mm-hmm. because ultimately what Alonda is is an, it's, it's an Italian restaurant mm-hmm. and Italians love us. Italians come into our restaurant and they like talk about how wonderful the pastas are and mm-hmm. how great the noodles are and how Italian insensibility it is. Right. So, the, you know, there is always a word fusion, mm-hmm. which uh, a lot of people doesn't take it positively because it's too playful and there's not much thoughts in it. But, um, you know, like the way you you respect the culture of each country's cuisine, I think that's alive in Alonda's menu, right? So- and, I, and I think that's what... That's why the food world and the and the people that come in take us seriously. Mm-hmm. I think that, and we sort of get back into what you had mentioned once about um, my advice towards cooks and people and what they do. And that's really understanding why you do these things. Like, I made the dashi every day in Morimoto for years, mm-hmm. for years. And that gives me the opportunity to understand why. And, you know, I've made... You know, I worked not only at iFury, but I worked in an Italian restaurant in when I was in culinary school for two years mm-hmm. before that. Right. Well, um, by the way, for listeners who are not familiar with the word dashi, dashi is really the your personality. It's a base stock. And then usually kombu, bonito, like, you mm-hmm. know, d- depends on your blend, yeah. right? Yes. It is the stock of Japanese cooking. Mm-hmm. It's the st- some ramen, tonkatsu, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe not, but... But it is the core stock, and it's the core stock at Alondo, mm. which I think is huh. yeah. It's we make it every, we make it every day. We use it more than we use chicken stock. Wow. So it's really, I, but but I understand why, and and that's something that I think people get caught up in this fusion term and this these words for it, and why it doesn't necessarily work because they don't understand. They mm. like read a book and they're like, oh, so I just put kombu in water and I bring it up to a boil and I throw you know bonito flakes into it, but that's not. Sure, if you oversimplify it, that's how it works. But mm. really, it's not. And but and like so, the Italians slow extract um, flavor from Parmesan rinds. Mm-hmm. You know, it's how they make tortellini on brodo in the in the Emilia Romagna region, right? Mm-hmm. So 
At the beginning, we did a dish that was tortellini al brodo that was parmesan dashi. Oh, I wanted, yeah, I want you to tell us about that because that's a dish I was really fascinated by. And uh, it's uh, based on uh, the Italian traditional pasta soup. Yes, so it's the tortellini al brodo is, is the tra- traditional Italian version of this. And what they do is they, ta- they start in cold water and they add parmesan rinds to um, a meat stock, mm. whether it be chicken or pork or both or whatever. So these parmesan rinds get slowly extracted and you see the fat from the parmesan sort of come out into the broth. Mm-hmm. And it's what causes one of the things that causes the soup to be cloudy. Mm. So I looked at it and through my knowledge of it said... Oh, slow extraction, lots of umami, mm-hmm. lots of glutamate in Parmesan. Mm. Sort of said to myself, well, kombu, lots of umami, lots mm-hmm. of glutamate, slow extraction, cold mm-hmm. water. Maybe these two things are going to work well together. Right. So know? again, to the listeners uh, who are not, just in case, are not familiar with the word umami, umami is uh, the savory taste and the fifth taste after salt, sweet, sour, bitter. Yes, yes. And it's been scientifically proven to be a taste. Right. And also, I think people tend to associate umami with uh, Japanese food, but it's a lot in Italian tomatoes, cheese, or any, mm-hmm. a lot of food. Yeah, mush- mushrooms, um, fish sauce is very prominent in Italian cuisine, to mm-hmm. full, full of umami. Mm. Um, so there's really a lot of this symbiotic chemical reasons why these two cuisines work together. Mm-hmm. Not just... We could get into the cultural side of it and how I think that the Japanese and the Italians are very family-oriented and very rooted in tradition mm. and, and like to sit down at the table and eat. And there's there's lots of sort of geographically we can talk about it, the right. mountains and, and, you know, the fried foods that come from and the braised meats that come from the mountainous regions of Italy and come from the mountainous regions of mm. Japan and, and the coastal foods that come from, you know, and the simplicity of the cooking mm. and... How it's, they take simple ingredients and respect them in both mm. cultures. Right, there's so much in common there's between so, Italian so and Japanese. There's so much in common between the Italian and Japanese. Right. And the other dish, I, um, you know, I was curious that how you combine the two cultures naturally. You know the risotto tatufo? Mm-hmm. Uh, you use yeah. uh, sake leaves. Yes. And uh-huh. sake leaves is basically um, a byproduct of sake making mm-hmm. in Japan. And uh, they are used as a pickling agent, marinade, and sometimes sauce. Mm-hmm. And then basically just a bomb of a mummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the idea about tattoo for risotto? So for me it was about, you know, this comes a little more from French than Italian. My backgrounds are very broad. But mm-hmm. it, it sort of comes from that funkiness that sort of comes from the truffle. You know, and mm-hmm. I've seen truffles in oysters, and I've seen truffles in mushrooms, and I've seen... Truffles in champagne, for instance, is a very is a very common sort of occurrence between these two things. And and what makes champagne and truffles work together? It's that yeasty funkiness, yeah. right? And what comes from sake leaves? It's that yeasty sort of funkiness mm. as well. So, um, we I was experimenting with how to use these the the kasu in 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 the sake kasu and mm-hmm. in the several sake leaves, sake yeah, kasu, yeah 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 right. uh-huh, in in different ways. And we used to we've marinated fish. We've you know. And you can taste that funkiness and, you know, truffles and, and cooked, slowly cooked fish work really nicely together. And mush, again, mushroom and, and sake kasu is something I had experimented with and seen at Morimoto. Mm. So it sort of just said, you know, maybe we should give these two things a try. And, you know, I think it was successful. And, and people that were were have tried it and experienced it seems seem to agree with me. Uh. I, have, I haven't eaten that, so I have to <laughs> Well, yeah. come truffle season again. Oh, okay. it'll, it'll be back. Right, uh, yeah. And, you know, the umami, 
is if you combine sakelis and black truffles, like they just don't add up. They multiply, right? Umami is multiplied if they're combined yes. together. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and it's it's. I don't want to kind of beat the dead horse here, but it's really. And I've sort of set this to be one of my goals as a professional, as a chef, to mm-hmm. really get people to understand how sim- symbiotic these two cuisines are. Right. And, and you're just there's so much glutamate in the cores of both of these cuisines, the mm. soy sauces and the, and the olive oils and the olives and, mm. you know, the, brine, the, the olive brines are so full of that umami-ish sort of flavor. Mm. And it's why I think they really, they, they interpret so well together. And... And I'm hoping, and it's one of my goals as a professional, to sort of continue that mission right. to get people to recognize why and how and, and how globally influenced and how well they work together. Right. All right. So uh, now let's take a quick break here. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about Chris, another unique project, Uma Temakiria. Uh, so please stay with us. Resources is proud to be a member of the business community that supports Heritage Radio Network. CARP Resources solves food problems. Our mantra is good food is good business, and it's our mission to help you connect the two. From designing regional sourcing strategies and sustainability plans to developing cutting-edge food curricula, we customize your approach to changing the food environment in your communities, marketplaces, or within your own organizations. Our diverse team of thinkers and practitioners apply honed methodologies and tactical experience to each challenge and opportunity. Our unparalleled cross-sector network expands your own, whether you are a philanthropic organization, a community college, a global food distributor, or a children's museum. To learn more, please visit carpresources.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio at Bushwick, Brooklyn. My guest today is Chris Jekyll, the chef owner of Alonda, a modern Venetian umami restaurant uh, near Union Square, and a fast casual restaurant called the Uma Temakiria that serves uh, made-to-order fresh hand-rolled sushi in Chelsea. So um, we have talked about the unique concept of Alonda with Japanese mm-hmm. flavors. So now uh, let's talk about Uma Temakiria. Uh, which opened October last year. Yes. And uh, first, what is it? Sure. So Uma is um, my sort of take on what the fast casual market is. Mm-hmm. Um, think, um, I guess the the real the, the short sentence is it's made to order fresh sushi, um, and in the cone form, which is the tamaki. So the tamaki is the cone shaped sushi. So it's it's essentially sushi in a in mm-hmm. a more portable shape. Right, and also usually if you go to sushi restaurant, there is a it's a, it's wrapped, you know, um, it's kind of, it, it's used uh, made with the makisu, which is a like a bamboo, you know, mat mm-hmm. to shape yes. it. So mm-hmm. uh, hand roll, you know, tamaki, you don't have to have it. It's a quick and easy. It's quick and easy, and it's it's. It's much less labor in terms of skill set. You mm. can teach 
a lot of people to do this and not sharpen knives and not sort of mm. go through it. The, the the I'd say the biggest challenge that has been is consistency with the rice because mm. the rice is very very important to me mm. and it's very important to the the business and the concept. So you know we and we use a hungiri and we make the rice. We use a shimoji, the wooden spoon mm-hmm. for it, and we really make it as traditionally as we can. Mm-hmm. We, the rice gets fanned and cooled to about 120, 530 degrees before we season it so mm-hmm. that it doesn't become glutinous and we really take a lot of pride in it, but the biggest struggle for me has been getting people that don't understand the rice and why to make it consistently well. Mm. Um, so that's the I'd say the the thing I'm the most proud of at the restaurant is how traditional how traditional we are in regards to making mm. the rice. So that, just going back quickly, the rice, so mm-hmm. the texture and the stickiness level. Mm-hmm. And some uh, sweetness because you had some sugar. Some sugar, some salt. Mm -hmm. So we make a mixture of um, vinegars, kombu, which Mm -hmm. we touched on briefly, the Mm -hmm. the seaweed and the the building of the glutamate and and the sort of flavor profile. So we take these vinegars. A couple of different rice vinegars, one brown rice vinegar, one white rice vinegar, mm-hmm. and the kombu. We bring that up to a steam, and then we emulsify lots of salt and sugar into this. We make a very concentrated, mm-hmm. sort of salty, sweet, vinegary sort of solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that we cool down, and then when we, we cook the rice off in our ratio of water to rice. Um, we use uh, another product called Maiola, which is a um, potato starchy. And then it's not potatoes. It's it's a starch agent. I think it's potato starch mm-hmm. that sort of binds to the rice on the outside when it's cooking to sort mm-hmm. of help it from getting too sticky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next key to the rice is cooling it without uh, without moving it around too much because it gets really glutinous if you if you work it when it's too hot. Mm-hmm. Um, so we bring it down to about 125, 130 degrees in that sort of range mm-hmm. um, w- through fanning and through laying out on the, sh- the hungiri, which is a big... Um, a giant um, wooden sort of flat bowl. Mm-hmm. Right. By the um, way, it's, it's it's glutinous, but uh, it's it's gluten free, right? Yes, Rices. it's glutinous yeah. but gluten free. Yes, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I like it. Um, on that note, Uma is a virtually a completely gluten free restaurant. Yeah. Um, but so the, so we cool the rice down and then we season it with this vinegar solution and then we we um, we move it into a holder that keeps it sort of at room temperature. That's the other thing I think that separates us from. Your other fast, um, casual or fast food sushi sort of experiences are the rice has all been refrigerated, mm-hmm. so rice is overcooked and mm-hmm. under seasoned, and and that I think really separates Uma from the other products in our price mm-hmm. point. It's like a fluffy texture and flavor. Yeah, and it's still, still at a minimum room temperature. Mm-hmm. You know, ideally it's warm, but it's never been cooled. So mm-hmm. that that really. I think changes the experience of the rice really mm-hmm. considerably and mm-hmm. and maintains quality very very highly. Right. Um, the other the other thing I think that we do well is the nori. If you eat it quickly, you still get that crispy nori experience, which mm-hmm. you don't get through all the very really anything other than a mm-hmm. sushi restaurant. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so the you know the other thing is uh, you know you said you came up with this idea because you know you can get good sushi unless you go to a sushi restaurant. Right. It's, yeah. So I, I I use the term solving a problem with uma. You know, Alonda is delicious, and I'm proud of it very much, but it's not solving a problem, necessarily. Mm. Where Uma sort of is gives people an opportunity to eat something that's quick and easy and fast and healthy, mm. all of these sort of things that I, I don't think exists really regularly. Mm. I found myself as a busy New Yorker, you know, bouncing from meeting to meeting and around town and sort of looking for something quick to eat that I could have in five minutes or ten minutes that was tasty and delicious 
that wasn't a piece of pizza or a cheeseburger or a Chipotle. And I love Chipotle. I think they do a shockingly good job for a company that's as big as they are. But but I kept finding myself craving something that I could eat quickly. And I found myself going to Whole Foods or to Dwayne Reed and buying these terrible... <laughs> I mean, ter- they're terrible. They're just not good. But I found myself wanting it. Wanting it. So I, I really sort of saw void and a hole in the business and and that I looked at as an opportunity to try something something new and so we you know we went for it mm. so the price point is a uh, is a 6 around 6 dollars per, mm-hmm. per so roll, we're so? between 550 and 650 per mm-hmm. roll right so you can just go quick and then yeah you can just eat and it's portable it's so portable as you walk mm-hmm. yes you can walk and eat it absolutely mm. um the other side of it is it's made in front of you so you have that sort of feeling of freshness because it's made physically as you walk down the line Mm -hmm. which I think is appealing Um, the portableness is the other side of it I think is very appealing Mm. on the other side of it it's delicious it's just it's just good it's not I mean is it reinventing the wheel or changing what people's flavor profiles are no but it's it's I don't think there's anyone delivering this sort of quality at this price point Mm -hmm. at least in New York right yeah. Oh, the and the in Brazil where there's a huge community of uh, Japanese immigrants, there is a temakeria. Mm-hmm. They are, and um, you know, I've never been to one, so I I can't really ex- express why they're popular or mm. how. But I do know that there's a very large Japanese population mm. in that region. Um, so I think that has something to do with it. I think it's the second largest Japanese population mm. outside of Japan. Yeah, right? I think so too. So so that certainly has some reason why it works there. Mm. Um, but it's it's. It was a, sort of a, shocking to me that no one had tried it here. Mm. And that was one of it. But the other side of it is they're not doing the same thing we do. They do something that's it's still a sit-down restaurant where you sit down, right. you order, right? Mm-hmm. You order from a menu of preset things where the separation for Uma is really about, A, playfulness. You can make your own. You can build whatever you'd like when you go in. You can sort mm. of say, I want tofu, carrots, tuna, and... Oh, let's talk about the menu then. Spicy mayo, whatever. (laughs) you have a, a, you know, the regular thing. It's already, you don't have to pick and choose. And Mm -hmm. the other one is customized, customizable. Right. So So we have five or six what are called signature chef creations that mm -hmm. that are sort of what I've decided are our base ingredients that work well together. Like our tuna, for instance, is... um, a wasabi kazame wasabi sauce which is sort of a preserved wasabi leaf with apples mm-hmm. um, and tuna so there's some fattiness from the tuna there's the sweetness from the apples there's the sour heat from this kazami wasabi mix there's mm-hmm. the sour and sweet from the rice so I think it sort of balances texturally and, and the flavor profiles um, it's innovative so, and then it's a little acidic rice yeah, sweet and yeah, sour rice yes so it's sort of they all of those I think are built to sort of have the, the, the elements that are necessary for good food. So mm-hmm. some some hot elements, some sweet elements, some salty elements, some sour element, mm-hmm. um, some umami elements. The, all of those sort of things exist in, in the ones that I've created. Mm-hmm. But you also have this opportunity to walk in and say, you know, I just want some carrots, some cucumbers, and some fluke today. Or, or you know, I really want spicy mayo, spicy mayonnaise, and crab meat mm-hmm. today. Right. Or whatever, whatever it is. Um it gives you that opportunity to sort of interpret and become a part of the experience. Hmm. Because if you customize, you know, that your signatures tend to be uh, not pure Japanese, but if you want to customize in a very Japanese way, you mm-hmm. can customize, you can just pick a tuna and a cucumber and uh, pickles, and that's totally Japanese yeah. style. Yeah, you can. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, who are the customers then? We have a lot of 
young children, actually, like yeah. like kids in high school, kids in elementary school, which I find to be interesting. Mm. Um, we have a lot of there's several gyms in our region and around us, so we have a lot of people that are out of the gym looking for something healthy to eat to mm. sort of refuel after they've sort of worked themselves mm. out. Um, so we see a lot of that. And a lot of men, which was really surprising to me. <laughs> it sounds like it's the opposite of what you expect. Yeah, I was really expecting it to be sort of be a, I don't know, maybe this is me being gender biased or something. I don't know. But I wasn't expecting it to be the, like, my age group, like, mm -hmm. men. And mm -hmm. a lot of them. And they come in, like, twice, three times a week. And really, the most surprising thing about it was that to me, where... Like, I know I love to eat it, and, mm -hmm. and I know there's lots of other people that love to eat it. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't expecting our demographic to be that extreme. Right. I thought it was a young, healthy, young lady. and then <laughs> I mean, that's what we certainly thought it was going to be. And those, and those exist, right. absolutely. But we were really surprised and pleasantly surprised by how much of that was, mm. was not that demographic. Right. And it's really cool. Like, young kids, like maybe 20, 30 years, your first experience of Japanese food, that's Uma Temaguya. Yeah, it's cool. And, and I think that we're we're doing a good enough job representing what it actually is to, to for us not to be offending anyone or, or sort of, you know, missing what the real, what the food should taste like. Mm. And that's, that I think we're doing a good job at. And I, and I mentioned solving a problem. Mm. And, and that's something that You can go get this fast food sushi, which is just not sushi. Mm. It's just not. Or you can go somewhere and spend two hours mm -hmm. and get an experience that is sushi, and there's virtually nothing that's in the middle. Mm. And the, the, the takeout sushi and the stuff that you sort of buy for delivery or go to the small places, they're not seasoning your rice. Mm. You know, the rice is quite often room temperature and quite often cooked semi-properly, but very rarely are they are they seasoning it so you get that... Mm. That experience and that mouthfeel of the rice, right. where it's so, like semi-smooth and sweet and sour mm. and like breaks apart. Very right. rarely do you get that. Yeah, so that came from your fine dining kitchen experience. It, it came from, yeah, some of it. You know, mm. it's, the, it's, the, it's the attention to details, I think, is what you really mm. get from the fine dining experience. Mm. And, uh, you know, the fish. Now, globally, a lot of more people... Uh, eating fish so mm -hmm. there's always a sustain sustainability issue about yes. fish so uh -huh. do you how do you deal with that matter sure so we do the best we can is the answer you know it's it we spent a very very long time tasting products and experiencing things a lot longer than i do at alonda or any of the other restaurants because alonda it's simple mm -hmm. i just charge more money for something <laughs> i mean it, i mean it's it's it sounds silly but it's simple mm -hmm. if i want tuna that's been line caught off of long island and that costs 17 dollars a pound or eight twenty dollars a pound then i can do that mm -hmm. and i can change the price from 17 dollars to 19 dollars mm -hmm. or, or whatever it is if that's if that's my mantra and what i represent mm -hmm. but uma represents something really differently and it's about value perception and about people being able to get something for six or seven dollars so you know what we do is we We use a company called Seat to Table, which is a very, very sustainable mm. company. Um, so all of our albacore is one of our, our, in the tuna family we're doing right now for spring. And it's all line caught. It's all wild. It's all mm. wild. Um, we buy in bulk. And it, frankly, I don't have anything to hide about this. It, it's frozen, mm -hmm. right? And we defrost it properly mm -hmm. and, tr and treat it right. Um, but it is, it's all pole caught. All, all of our tuna is, it's globally influenced. It's from the Philippines, but it is pole caught. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the Monterey Bay seafood um, sort of 
guide of Philippines, the Philippines and wild tuna is still in the on the green mm-hmm. in so the that's green the category. Sheet, like, you see that the Monterey Aquarium mm-hmm. publishes. Yes, so and they have fish. different colors like orange and red and mm. yellow and green for like how sustainable they determine mm. that those products are um, and what regions are. So the Philippines are still in the green section for wild caught tuna. So that's oh, wow. where that's where we're buying it from. Mm. Um, our, our, our crab meat is, is you know, the company that we chose um, claims to be sustainable in the sense that they they farm their crabs, mm-hmm. but what they do is they do that on land, and they remove all their crabs from the ocean, and the, the crabs are farming, they reintroduce into the natural oh, environment. Right. Whether they survive or not is some totally different topic, but they're mm-hmm. at least trying to replenish what they remove from the ocean with what they're farming on land. Mm-hmm. Um, so we feel like we're... And when we had fluke, our fluke was is, was caught on Long Island because it's reasonably priced, and I could sell it at that point. So we do our, the best we can. Mm. Um, is it ideal? No, I don't. I, I don't know if anything at this price point that's possible. Mm. But but we really do the best we can to sort of represent sustainability and mm-hmm. and paying attention to the environment. Right, because you know, for health, a lot of people say it's better to eat fish than meat. You mm-hmm. know, doctors say so. Somebody has to. Eat fish, and then right. you have to do your best. So it sounds like you're doing. We're trying. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I would argue about which one is healthier. Yeah. I, my 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 personal feeling, if we're talking about health, is that it's it's life is about moderation. Mm. And if you eat too much of anything, right? Candy, sugar, lobster. You know, like <laughs> whatever it is, it's it's not going to be good for you. It's right. not going to be balanced. You're not going to get the nutrients you need. So you know, I'm not opposed to serving good meat or good fish. You just need to. Pay attention. Mm. Okay. And uh, so uh, how do you manage two busy restaurants? Do you have like a twin brother or something? <laughs> <laughs> so I I mentioned learning about being a business person at Stephen Starr's company, and that ultimately is the way it is. So I, I don't want to get too much into detail about the structure of the two businesses, but I, Alonda, I'm the managing partner. So Alonda, I am the managed direct supervisor for the entire building. So I spend virtually all of my time at Alonda. Mm. Not all. I spend. I get into Uma several times a week, and I spend you know a few hours, a minimum of a few hours a week there. But I, that that was built for me not to be constantly there. Mm. And it, the way I structured Uma is I'm in. I'm a co-founder and one of the owners of the business. So. Mm. I sit in the board meetings, I sit in the weekly manager meetings, I sit in and, and we discuss what the ideas are and what needs to happen, but I'm not required to be there on a daily basis for operation mm. operational purposes. So that's how I dealt with this particular case, is that I, I've structured it so that I'm not the manager. I'm just mm. there to offer my advice and make menu changes and train the staff when we have new staff members in. But once that sort of happens, we have systems in place to keep the management team that is there mm-hmm. running it. Right. And are you planning to open more Uma? Well, yes, the plan is always to open more. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but I, I, we're sort of we're we're sniffing around is 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 mm. is the word for it. We haven't necessarily settled in on anything. We haven't made any decisions. It's really important that we get it right before we move on. Right. You know, I want to. I want to take it slowly, at least in the beginning. Mm. They say the first couple are hard, and then once you have a few, it gets easier to sort of right. grow. Um, and I was a first-hand witness to people not expanding fast enough and having a problem long-term mm-hmm. and people expanding too fast and having a part problem right. long-term. And so I've sort of tr- I'm trying to learn from my experiences w- that other people learned from and, mm-hmm. and take my time and really feel like the places are working and running well before right. we start mm-hmm. trying to do too much. Right. Well, maybe you find something to 
challenge yourself a bit more. <laughs> well, <laughs> well um, so uh, thank you for joining us today, Chris, and uh, good luck. Thanks, Akiko. Happy to be here. So,、uh, listeners, if you'd like to know more about Chris restaurants, please visit、uh, alondanyc.com and umatemakeria.com. And if you have any questions or comments, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org. And you can also reach me at akikokatayama.com. Japan Eats is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org. I'll see you next week. Listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 